I think we all did pretty good, pretty good following the story until we got to the last verse. Verse 27. What is this about? He sacrifices his oldest son, the king of Moab, and then it says something quite peculiar. It says that a great wrath fell upon Israel. Quite interesting. So we're going to get to what this verse is actually in reference to. And so with, with better context, we can understand the, the whole story. Well, just as uh, for the sake of review, what is taking place? There is a war waging between not only the nation of Israel, but he's allying with Israel, with the Moabites, and the kingdom of Judah. Okay. Of the Edomites, I apologize. And so these three nations are going up to fight against the Moabites. Okay. Now, why are the Moabites a concern to the nation of Israel? Well, the Moabites, they were held captive by the nation of Israel for many years since the campaign of King David. So King David, the warrior king, subjugated the Moabites along with, you know, conquering the Philistines and all the other Canaanite nations. Well, King David made a treaty, if you will, with the Moabites. He will let them live if they will pay taxes to the nation of Israel. And so often the, the Moabites would pay homage to the nation of Israel through their highest commodity, cattle. Okay? And it was sort of as a thanksgiving offering unto the nation of Israel. And it happened so until King Ahab died. And when King Ahab died, the Moabite king said, I had enough. I'm not going to give all my cattle to the nation of Israel any longer. I'm not sure why he didn't do it when King David died, but after many years later, somehow when King Ahab died, he got fed up. And so this was a problem because they were not, uh, not only paying to Israel what they had agreed to, but they were also rebelling against the nation of Israel. And whenever there is a threat against the nation of Israel, we see this happen over and over and over in the first king's narrative and the king's narrative that the northern king, whoever it is, seeks the help and the aid of the southern kingdom. He seeks the help of King Jehoshaphat, who has aided two other kings before King Jehoram. And so the, king, the northern king and the southern king, King Jehoshaphat of the south, King Jehoram of the north, set out to go and 
completely obliterate the nation of Moab. But why did they seek the help of Edom? They don't need Edom. As I mentioned last week, the, the Moabites, where they reside, is east of Judah. They, they could have just gone a straight shot eastward to attack the Moabites. The only problem was there was a big, big body of water separating the two nations, the Dead Sea. And so they had to go south and then to the north and then to the east. But who is south of Judah? The Edomites. And so as they were passing through, might as well seek the aid of their long-lost brother or maybe better cousin. Because the Edomites are... They, have this, they share the same Israelite blood. They're from the, the line of Esau, Jacob's brother. Interesting thing is Moab, the Moabites were as well. They were the son of Lot, Abraham's nephew. And so, last week, you guys remember, God gave them a sign to assure them that they would be victorious in battle by pouring out to them streams of water. And that water, this sign from God, was to assure the, 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 the Israelite nation, along with her allies, that they would be victorious in overtaking the Moabites. And so, we come now to verse 21, the passage that we started off with this afternoon. And it says that the Moabites heard that all the kings had come up to fight against them. And so they were ready. They were prepared to fight. And when they were drawn to the battle, it says that in the early dawn, they saw the, the, the water that God had given to the army of Israel. And what did they see? It says they saw the water opposite them as red as blood. Now some commentaries believe it's, it's the way that the sun shone on the water so it was kind of like a mirage. It, it, it was an illusion. It, it seemed like it was blood when it, when it certainly wasn't. Other commentators believe that it was God's intervention, altering their sight so that they only see blood in the water. Regardless of which interpretation you take, they saw water in the blood. They saw blood in the water. And how did they interpret this? They inferred, ah, because there is blood in the water, that must mean that the nations have fought against one another. Because they know the tensions that was between the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. These two nations, they're not like each other. 
And they were just temporary allies because they had a common enemy. But for the most part, they did not like each other. And then on top of that, you have the Edomites, who has a long history of hating the nation of Israel. So it would make sense that that was where the blood came from. And they rejoiced. They said, this is the blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. And so God leads the Moabites into a trap. The Israelite army was ready for the, the advancement of the Moabite army. And so with the Moabites, with their, with their guard down, all they wanted to do was just take the spoils. All the Moabites were expecting to see were the dead bodies of the armies fighting one another. But instead, before them was a great army waiting. And then it says they went forward striking the Moabites as they went. And the Moabites, as they were fleeing, the Israelite army chased them down, killing every person that they could, that they could get their hands on. And as they did, entering into Moab territory, as God had said last week, they did. Completely obliterating the nation of Moab. Wherever their foot has set on, they destroyed. There was no building that they passed that was left erect. All came crumbling down. And this is something that we are going to see and that we have actually seen prior to this incident. We've seen this in the book of Genesis. When God gave the Canaanite nation to the hands of Joshua, or the Israelites under the leadership of Joshua. God did not only command them to destroy the army, but the, the territory of the enemy. Do not leave one stone erect as a sign that God's wrath is infinite. What they were doing was displaying God's great wrath. And this is what it looks like. Who can stand against the wrath of God? Who can stand when you stand opposite God? No one. Nothing can stand before God. It is foolish to think that you can fight against him and win. So the king of Moab, seeing that the, the battle was not going his way, took 700 skilled swordsmen with him. The, the final push. And after that was unsuccessful, 
we see that he he did what? He sacrificed his oldest son. What is this about? An act of desperation. He killed his son. But what's even more strange is the, the reaction of the sacrifice. What is the great wrath against Israel about they God here respond well to the sacrifice of, of the king's son. But one thing we have to understand was what the king of Moab doing unique? Was the act of sacrifice unique to the nation of Moab? What we are going to see when you guys do some uh, study into the, the history of this region, it was actually standard practice. Standard practice. It goes all the way back to ancient Egypt. The Egyptians who saw that the greatest commodity of life was human blood more precious than gold, so valuable. Because the essence of life was in the blood of the human being. And so we see stories of humans actually being offered to their gods. Because what has more greater value than the blood of a human being? This is not just an Israelite mentality. This was throughout the, the region of this time. Child sacrifice in particular was standard practice by the Canaanite nations, the nations that were surrounding Israel, and the nations that were actually residing in Israel before uh, Joshua took it over. Molech, the, cho the choice god of the Canaanites. He was a god where the Canaanite nation would actually offer their children to him. They would, he would be built out of bronze, hot bronze, and they would burn fire within the statue. And the, the children will be burned inside. Whether the babies died before or after is not the issue. The issue is that they offered their children to this God. Why did they do this? So that the, the God's wrath could be appeased. They, they could satisfy the wrath of God through sacrifice. So even the pagan nations understood that animal sacrifice was not enough. 
Even the pagan nations understood this. The blood of goats and sheep and bulls, not enough. They need the blood of, of, of a human. You know, in the, during the Greco-Roman times, in, in ancient uh, Rome, a Roman historian by the name of Quintus Curtius, he writes this when they encountered the nation of Tyre. Some proposed renewing a sacrifice which had been discontinued for many years of offering a freeborn boy to Saturn. This sacrifice handed down to them from their founders. And they had performed this until the destruction of their city. So regardless of where you were and which God you served, there was this prevailing idea that you can win the favor of your God through sacrifice. And so this is what the Moabite king was doing when he was offering his son. He was offering his son as a sacrifice unto his God, his God at this time, Shemosh, the fish God. Very interesting. They, they have gods for everything. And he was the God of war, the destroyer, as he is nicknamed. So he was not killing his son as a sign of desperation and as a plea to... to to have his nation be spared, it was a ritual, a religious ritual unto his God. And so, in a sense, one commentator said what he was doing was actually commendable. To spare his nation, he sacrificed his son so that the rest of his nation will not feel the wrath of Israel he put an end to that by sacrificing his own son. He offered him as a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel. How do we make sense of this? success and the sacrifice of a pagan king to a pagan god? What is this great wrath? Well, I think this is where the few places in scripture where the English translation does not do us well. Okay. There are many times where uh, Hebraic ideas is not successfully transferred into English. The Hebrew word that we see here for great wrath is ketseth. And a better rendering of that word is not wrath, but indignation. So a better rendering of this verse is not a great wrath against Israel,
but great indignation upon Israel. You guys may say, so what? You're just saying the same thing in different words. No, but they give a completely different meaning. What is indignation against, uh, indignation upon Israel? It, the word denotes a psychological breakdown or trauma that affected the Israelite forces when they beheld the sight of human sacrifice. Let me repeat that. Psychological breakdown or trauma that, was, that affected the Israelite forces when they beheld the sight of human sacrifice. When everyone else was sacrificing their children, God forbade human sacrifice. It was detestable in the eyes of God. You do not sacrifice a living creature of God. A human being, I should say. So for them to behold something that was detestable in their faith, it was too much for them to stomach. This was something that was foreign. Foreign to them. Just thinking about me sacrificing one of my sons makes me sick to my stomach. And I know for everyone sitting here. But if you grew up in a nation where that was common practice, it might be different. So the, the, the nation of Israel... Had, had that hedge of protection around them. They were not exposed to such uh, atrocious deeds as, as human sacrifice. And we could say demonic. There's nothing godly about it. And so, what did they do? They just went back home. Knowing that the battle was won already, they have sent a clear message to the king of Moab because they could not take that sight anymore. They went back. They just went back home. That to them was also a sign of their victory. What is this underlying principle that we could take from this? Something that even the pagan nations understood. Blood atones. Blood atones. Whatever God you serve, you understood that there was something powerful in the blood. There is atonement in the blood. And for the Christians, for us who are sitting here today, we know not only that blood matters, because we have been saved by the blood of Christ, 
We know this. But we understand that which blood is sacrificed matters even more. See, in the Old Testament, there was something that was set up called animal sacrifice. And why was animal sacrifice introduced to the nation of Israel? Why this violent deed of, of slashing the, the throats of the, the animal and having the, the blood of the animal spill over the Ark of the Covenant? Because God also has dictated to his people what the world already knew, that there was atonement in the blood. On Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the sacrifice of all sacrifices, Yom Kippur is the day where the sins of Israel will be appeased. The goat is slain and its blood is sprinkled in the Holy of Holies and that goat's blood will cover the sins of Israel. But it was temporary because they had to do it year after year after year. The priest would have to perform this act every year. And it was temporary. But what was the point of animal sacrifice? It was because the Israelite people could not meet the perfect standards of God. That was why. Because they knew that there would be punishment that would be brought upon the nation of Israel if they did not keep the statutes of God. And because, as all human beings that roam the earth are, are sinful, and they cannot in and of themselves keep the, the perfect standards of God, there, have to, there has to be ramifications. And so God made a way out. The animals would be the means by which there would be temporary peace between God and man. This is one thing, again, that we have to, to realize about the Bible itself. The Bible is a compass, always pointing to Jesus Christ. It is a roadmap that leads ultimately to the person of Jesus Christ. Everything that you read before the book of Matthew are stories that point to, that foreshadow Jesus Christ. And everything after Matthew is pointing to what he has already done. 
And so we see these, these prototypes and foreshadowing and allusions to him all throughout scripture. And we see this best in, in the institution of animal sacrifice, the shedding of blood. Because it was to point to the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice of God's son, Jesus Christ. This is why in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 11 to 14, it reads this, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which cannot which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice of sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. A once and for all sacrifice. So we see this principle in this story, even though the act was performed by a pagan king to a pagan god. The, the, the battle was halted. There was actually peace that occurred because of the sacrifice. So even though the act was performed by a, a, a pagan king, we draw a lesson from this. Because as I said, everything that we read in the Old Testament is a blueprint and compass that points to him. And that is the principle that we see in the New Testament. Foundational to our faith. That we are redeemed because of the blood of someone else. Someone who had to be perfect. The animals had to be without blemish. So the cross, the single greatest event in human history. Christ became our propitiation. What is that? Appeasing the wrath of the offender. Appeasing the wrath of the offender. But it's also two parts. Not only appeasement, but it's also being reconciled simultaneously. Jesus Christ appeased the wrath of God and allowed us to have peace with him on the cross. One time deal. And just like how we see in scripture that the Moabs were spared, we too have been spared by the full wrath of God because of what his son Jesus Christ has done. Redeemed by propitiation. A.W. Tozer says the cross stands high above the opinions of men 
and to that cross all opinions must come at last for its judgment. Every human being will be judged according to how they responded to that one act. Everyone subject to the cross. Will they accept it? Will they receive the sacrifice? Or will they not? So this is why I love, I love reading the goggles of New Testament. Because you see just how God is preparing the way for the, the, the final act of redemption through His Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that we can be humbled by this as well. That you are not saved by good works or being a good person. You are saved solely by what Jesus Christ has done. You are saved by a blood being shed that is not of your own. And so with that, we give thanksgiving to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.